0: This is Faux Real, a podcast where I chat with indie filmmakers about their filmmaking processes, their inspirations, and what their stories mean to them. And I'm your host, Don Borchardt. On this episode, I talk with filmmaker Chris Thompson and the star of his film, Yvonne Bradley, for the documentary We Are Not Ghouls. This episode is legitimately my favorite episode I've ever recorded. You know when you do something that just feels really exciting and you're like riding a high afterwards? That's how I felt after recording this episode. So I really hope you enjoy it. I felt so privileged to get to talk with both of them, especially Yvonne Bradley. She's an incredible woman and she's had a huge hand in our US history. So I really hope you enjoy this episode, and I can't wait for everyone to get to see the film. It is coming out nationwide, February 28th. My name is Yvonne
1: Bradley. I am the, I will put the subject matter of, of the film uh, We Are Not Goals. I am a retired JAG officer, which stands for Judge Advocate General. And I'm also retired in real life now from both my civilian job as well. But I do volunteer at the local public defender's office, and I'm a full time student at Howard University. Getting my PhD in history.
2: My name is Chris James Thompson. I am an independent filmmaker, documentary filmmaker. And my film, We Are Not Ghouls, is a documentary, feature documentary about Yvonne Bradley, Lieutenant Colonel Yvonne Bradley, who is a JAG Air Force officer that was assigned to defend a man held at Guantanamo Bay in 2005. The man's name was Binyam Mohammed, and the case ended up taking several years. And so the story is a portrait of one soldier's assignment and how her life was changed forever.
0: Well, Chris, I just wanted to start this episode out talking a little bit about our background because we do know each other <laughs> personally. From what I recall, which you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think we first met because you were working with Chris Smith way back in the day, possibly.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I love this game of trying to remember yeah. the first time you met someone. Yeah, um, I was trying to think sense. about
0: it. And I what I do most clearly remember was when I was in college and I was like the office cat sitter for Blue Mark and cleaner and you were there editing, I want to say. And we're basically my manager.
2: <laughs> yes, the memories are coming back to me now. So that must have been 15 or 20 years ago. It was yes. my first job out of university. So I had a film degree and a business degree. And Chris Smith, who's a very well known filmmaker, especially these days, he was recently, he's made like six films in the last two or three years, but he was a producer on Tiger King. And then he made a surfing movie for HBO called The Big Wave. He just released another movie at telluride he's made a whole bunch of huge movies at that point in time he he was making independent films out of milwaukee and that's where i was living and i graduated film school and he hired me to teach him and the other filmmakers in his studio in downtown milwaukee how to use final cut pro because they were using avid at the time and in the industry things were shifting from avid to final cut pro and because we were using final cut pro in school I knew technically how to use it, but of course I didn't have that many skills as a filmmaker. So I was basically showing up there at eight in the morning and I would stay until like nine or 10 at night and they would buy me meals and stuff. And I would just show them how to transfer their projects from Avid over to Final Cut, how to use Final Cut. And then they started to realize they could have me go get lunch for them and then I could drive cars and help help them get to the airport and then advantage start... the
0: cat sitter.
2: Exactly. And, and just help with everything. So I was sort of a man an office manager of sorts. And one of the jobs was facilitating interns and people that were working there. And I remember you were working there. So I was looking through my emails this week and I saw emails with you from like 15, 20 years ago oh that were my like, gosh. Hey Don, there's a check for you on the table. The the two cats need to go to the vet on this day, that kind of stuff. So I do remember. Oh it. My Very gosh. Well. That's so
0: fun. Speaking of cats, yvonne has got a cat right there. Yeah, we're all cat people. (laughs) That's so funny. Well, professionally, I also remember that you. So you made the film The Jeffrey Dahmer Files in 2012, I believe. And I was at the premiere at the Oriental Theater because my dad was in that film, and I went to the premiere with my mom and my stepdad and some of my friends. And yeah, I wanted to kind of get started with talking just kind of about how milwaukee is such a small community in a lot of ways but the film scene is just getting more and more rich as time goes by and how does the success of a film like this and what you're doing and the people who all worked on the film like how does that affect the milwaukee film scene or any small city film scene
2: yeah it's a good question it's hard to know exactly because i'm just coming out of the thick of it like we we literally just delivered the film 12 or 24 hours ago. So I've been in the trenches trying to finish it with Yvonne. We've been going to festivals trying to promote it and stuff. So I haven't uh, spent a bunch of time in Milwaukee with the film yet. Not many people in Milwaukee have seen the film. It hasn't played there. It's not available on streaming or anything. So that part is yet to come, but I will say that the film scene in Milwaukee is definitely growing. You know, there's kids that are 24, 25 that are making stuff that I couldn't have made till I was 35, you know. So it, People are getting better faster. They're making more interesting stuff that's being seen by more people. The film school here, University of Milwaukee, it's an experimental film program. It's where the movie, American movie, that your dad, Mark, was in, came out of. The director, Chris and Sarah, the directors, Chris and Sarah, were involved with the program at that time. And a lot of people who've seen American Movie will come to Milwaukee because they're interested in the film program, interested in your dad, Mark, interested in Chris and Sarah. And so that sort of started a wave of people my age coming here and then. That's transitioned into, you know, people that are in their 20s and even teenagers coming here just to attend experimental film school. So it's been decades of lots of strange, weird artists coming here, wanting to make fresh stuff, which is ended up in sort of an incubator of a, a really cool, small indie scene.
0: I didn't know that you went there because of that. That's cool. I mean, a lot yeah. of people I know kind of did because it put it on the map, but that's awesome. How did you get involved in this story?
2: I got involved in this actually because of UWM as well. So I was a film student from roughly like 2001 or two until 2005 or six. And at that time, obviously, post 9 11, war in Afghanistan, war in Iraq, the war on terror here at home. And one of my classmates at film school at UW Milwaukee was a Jordanian immigrant. And he was a bit older than me, he was like maybe in his 30s. And he had worked at like a cable television in Jordan. So he knew a whole bunch about broadcast motion picture making. But he and specifically wanted to come to the University of Milwaukee Film School to learn experimental film and make art and be very creative with his trade. And so I became close friends with him. And he would be helping me on my movies. I would help him on his movies. And we were, tra- we were moving through the program together. So we had a lot of classes and shared teachers together. And we would help each other. And one day he didn't show up for school. And my teacher told me that He had been informed that he was detained by Homeland Security and he was held downtown in Milwaukee. Um, And like days were going by, couldn't hear from him, didn't know what was going on. Weeks were going by. And eventually I just went down there and tried to see him and they let me in to see him. And he was like on the other side of a big bulletproof glass window. And I remember he had like his teeth had been knocked out and his jaw was all wired shut. And I was trying to ask him like, what's going on? Why are you in here? What's happening? Like, how do we get you out? And he was just saying, like, it's all a misunderstanding. Don't worry about it. I hurt my mouth and my teeth playing basketball. This will all go away. Like, don't worry about it. I'll be back in school with you soon. And so I left that day still very confused and concerned. And like weeks and months just kept going by. And he was held in there longer and longer. And it started to become an issue that was in the news. And the FBI released a statement that said it was called Operation Magic Carpet, which was like seemed real offensive and, and kind of hurtful, you know, to his friends in the film program, because we couldn't really get information about why he was being held. And it was slowly leaking out in into the local news. But like months were going by, and he was eventually released, like after the next semester. And he came back to school. And uh, he just didn't want to talk about it. You know, I tried to ask him, like, what had happened. And he's just saying it's a big immigration misunderstanding. It's like, paperwork stuff. And they're just scared of people from where I come from. So I just don't want to talk about it. I don't want you to get involved because everyone that gets involved with this, it messes up their life. It fucks up their life. So that was like a very traumatic experience for me. And I didn't really know what to do about it at the time. felt pretty hopeless and helpless. And so years were going by after that of just reading books and trying to learn as much about the war on terror as possible to try to make sense of what had happened to him because it didn't seem like... If he came from like a white Western country and had a white Western name, it probably wouldn't have happened in the same way that it happened. That's all I kept thinking was like, there's only one reason that this happened to him in the manner that it happened because where he came from and what his name sounded like. And, you know, that made me really mad. So it still makes me emotional. But One of the books I was reading at the time was called The Guantanamo Lawyers. And this book is about different attorneys, like over 100 different attorneys and people that work. In the legal industry that were involved with Guantanamo and cases down at Guantanamo and their experiences defending or prosecuting or just being advocates in general for people that were being detained there. And it was really interesting because there were so many different perspectives, right? These were like a hundred different attorneys from all over the US and the world. So some of them were wealthy, some were not, some were men, some were women, some worked in the military, some were private, some were social justice warriors, some were Republicans, some were Democrats. It was a huge spread of perspectives, but the common thread was that there's a huge tragedy unfolding down there because Americans aren't aware of all the details and the complications, the torture, the rendition, all these things. And so that was sort of in line with what I had seen happen to my friend, you know, this issue where even the people closest to him don't know what to do because there's so much secrecy. And the essay from that book that stuck out the most to me or was the most powerful in my mind was written by a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force named Yvonne Bradley. She was a JAG attorney. And her perspective was so fascinating because I think it was because because she was on the inside, she was part of the military. So the military has a set of goals and obligations running Guantanamo Bay and managing the people that are held there. But then she's in a position where she's a defense attorney. So her job is to defend someone who is held there. So she's put in the middle where she has to defend someone, right? Make sure that their rights are protected and that they're receiving justice for their situation. But she's a participant, a military employee who's receiving a paycheck from an institution that's telling us that these people are all terrible and, you know, should be prosecuted, potentially put to death. All these things that so her perspective was just so fascinating because it was such a, a complex conflict that she was in the middle of. And the courage that she spoke about having to summon to work on this case, it was just really inspiring to me. And it was cathartic reading about her experience and perspective, considering what had happened to my friend to imagine that someone in Yvonne's position could be an advocate for someone who, you know, was treated unfairly or detained unjustly. And so um, I reached out and connected with her and nine years later, We Are Not Ghouls is a feature film that premiered at South by Southwest this year. So those are sort of the bookends on the creation of that film.
0: I had no idea about your friend's story or how that led you to this. So thanks for sharing that. That's intense. Yvonne, I kind of want to turn over to you. So to add a little bit more context in the film, it shows how you, I believe the term is pleading the fifth, but correct me if I'm wrong, where you're refusing to answer questions from the judge and also were sticking up for what you felt was right to the media and sort of taking that next step to get out information about your client in a way that not all defense attorneys do, and certainly not one in your position where you're hired by the U.S. government. And there's some things that you say in the film that I really love, which is you're about how your job is not to free bad people but to make sure that the system works but you also acknowledge that anyone can get caught up in the system and it's not just people who are guilty or who are doing something wrong but even if they are guilty that they still deserve to be treated fairly but can you talk about what it's like to stand up for what is right instead of what might be best for you whether that's best for you career-wise or best for your mental well-being or your best for your relationship. So what is that like?
1: Sure. And I can definitely talk about it in the context of what actually happened, because what most people don't know at that time when I took that stance in the courtroom, one, it wasn't planned, but it was part of my values and principles that came in. And there was other things that had occurred prior to that that I was already upset about that were totally unjust in how they were running the system. But what people didn't know at the time when I had to take that stand, I was a major at the time and I was in what we call the zone to be promoted. So I knew within the next two, three months, I was gonna face a board to become a Lieutenant Colonel. And so part of me when I took that stand was part of me, am I gonna blow my Colonel, my chance to be promoted as a Lieutenant Colonel or am I going to stand on my principles and knowing this is wrong and if I allow this to go on, is that they're going to railroad a person who, in my mind at that time, had not done anything wrong. And I had never been given any solid evidence that I thought that he had committed these crimes. So I was a seasoned attorney as well, and I had done high profile cases. So for me, what kicked in was me taking for what I consider the high ethical road as an attorney to make sure that due process was going to be done that no, even like day of my career, if I don't get the promotion, then I don't get the promotion. It's just not to be, but I'm not going to sacrifice my principles and this guy's life, particularly since he was facing the death penalty for me to put a light colonel on my uniform. So that was one of the balances that I had to think about in doing it. But I just knew what was happening was so wrong that my conscience could not allow me To allow the system to continue to represent him the the way they were. And particularly when the judge, when it was obviously to me that I was trying to tell the judge, there's a problem, there's a conflict, and he's just totally ignoring me. I knew then that you guys aren't giving trials down here. This isn't a matter of trying to make sure individuals get trials or the evidence heard. You just want these convictions and you can lock people away and say, we gave them due process which was not going to happen.
0: So I know that this court case and the whole system is so much bigger than you, but in watching the film, I couldn't help constantly thinking about kind of what Chris was just talking about, this notion of outsider and how the country and people watching the trial and the people in the trial and everything are using their biases at any point, whether that's like Islamophobia or racism On so many levels. And, you know, we still see this today with the U.S.'s response to Ukraine, for example, versus the response to what's happening in Iran or Syria, things like that. It's like we're just constantly seeing these drastic differences between how The media is portraying things and the country is taking in what the media is saying, but also how people are treated on these trials. But all that to say was it wasn't lost on me that you are a black woman fighting for the rights of this Islamic man and are both sort of hitting against, you know, (laughs) heteronormative white men in a lot of ways. Was that something that was on your mind and that you felt through this process? Or did that not even have an effect on you? And- because you're part of a bigger
1: thing. It probably did not have an effect on me. And that's probably because of my career being in the criminal justice system and knowing the imbalance, the racial disbar- uh, differences. So no, that did not particularly have an effect on me on this case, because that was something I, have, I dealt with almost on a daily basis in dealing with the criminal justice system to see that racial disparity play out. Each and every day.
0: That's sad. But yeah, that's understandable and makes sense. There was something else that I was thinking about that you said that really resonated with me in relation to both Binyam and you, which was you said when he needed people the most, no one could help him. And that was kind of referring to when he was originally detained and well, the whole time he was detained and his family and friends weren't able to reach him and he was really isolated and alone in a lot of ways in every way, but really emotionally. But I was thinking about how you made a conscious choice to keep your work private from your own family and presumably your friends as well. Were you thinking about that connection of isolation between the both of you? And was that something that you sort of like connected with him on and understood him on?
1: For me, and it's a complex response because personally for me, it goes back to something what Chris said with his friend, that you don't want to get people involved in something that you know you can't control. And I knew at that time what was happening. I'm involved the deepest level and the highest level, I should say of government from the White House, the CIA, to the FBI. So I didn't want to pull anyone into it. And I didn't know how much I was going to be pulled into it and how much it was going to uh, affect me. And it was affecting me emotionally, spiritually, in every single way, psychologically. So no, I didn't want anyone else pulled into it. So I made that conscious choice to keep people out of it. Also, when you don't bring people into it, you don't have to worry about saying things that you shouldn't be saying, whether it's um, attorney privilege conversation or um, material, classified material, things of that nature. So that was on one level. And on the other level, as far as knowing people couldn't help him, I felt helpless as much as Bingham's family did, because the rules and the laws and the policies were so complicated, so delusional, that I never had a case where I could go in and tell someone, But this is the law and this is likely to happen. I was never a point where I was able to do that for Bingham. And I even saw times when he came to me and he had to say, Tell my sister not to write me, tell my brother not to write me, tell everyone you know not to be in contact with, with me at all. And at first, I couldn't realize, I couldn't understand why that was until I realized every single piece of evidence or information that they obtained on someone they used against them. So if a letter came in from his sister, they would pull out whatever they could to interrogate him. And this was years later. So again, it was that there was no one who could help him. Even trying to write him would, be, would hurt him. So it was just, from, it was so emotional on so many different levels. And when you realize you're a small part of a problem, and you see the problem, you're trying to correct the problem, and there's no way to get to the bottom of the, of the situation, it gets very, very frustrating. So, no, I didn't want anyone else involved in this.
0: You talked a little bit about gardening, and so I'm curious to hear, what were some of the ways, can you talk about how you took care of yourself during this time, especially as you're, like, kind of emotionally isolating yourself? Like, what does that self-care and going through the emotions look like?
1: That's a good question. And I don't even know how, well, I think there was a couple of ways that uh, we took care of ourselves Um, by being defensive counsels and being in a small community. We all knew what we were going through and could help each other through just that camaraderie of in the, in the office and with other uh, attorneys. And also for me, for most of my time and work in Bingham's case, I was not full time active duty, and I did that on purpose. It was strategically done for my client, and but it was also mentally done that way. I was out of that military community for a 24 hours, seven day period. I could go back and be Yvonne and not be you know Major Bradley. So that helped as well. And the gardening piece that was something I took on when I started doing a death penalty cases in Pennsylvania. I was a capital habeas attorney and and dealing death with dealing with death penalty cases is very heavy and so i found gardening just for me to be a relaxing tool to be in the garden and digging and getting some exercise and i think i say this in the in the documentary to plant something and watch life from something versus death was just the opposite of what i was dealing with when i was dealing with um capital case so gardening has always been that relief tool for me
0: I'm glad you had that sense of community with like your colleagues on these cases, because I, I just can't imagine doing that by yourself. You do a lot of things that are commendable that not everyone wants to do. And you talked about it in the beginning of the film, how you were in law school and chose to go this route. And your other fellow students were like, are you failing? Because why are you doing this like horrible thing? So major kudos to you. And I hope that people are recognizing that in your life all the time, like what you're doing for people and society as a whole, because it's it's not an easy thing to be the person who sticks up for people that no one else wants to stick up for. Chris, I wanna talk to you about kind of the purpose of making films like this, because previously the other doc feature doc that I saw you make was the Jeffrey Dahmer Files, And between that, and I know you've made a lot of other work in between and in a lot of different roles, but between that and a story like this, these films can be triggering for people, but also cathartic and triggering for people and cathartic to the audience, to the filmmakers, to the people in the film, to people who have been affected. So how does like filmmaking play into these kinds of stories and how do you kind of balance all of those emotions and feelings that everyone has?
2: Yeah. Well, those two movies, they're both related to personal experiences that I had that were traumatic for myself. So in one sense, they were like explorations of trying to pull those moments of my life apart or periods of my life apart. So they're very selfish in that sense. But then my style of filmmaking or my method of documentary filmmaking is trying to find people who are involved in those moments of time or in those situations and allow them to expound on what it was like for them personally and to try to paint a picture of the ripple effects of these moments in time or situations and hope that it adds value to the viewer and, and maybe to the participants to be able to explain themselves and, and get some of it off of their chest and their shoulders. Because for me, making the film is just days and nights and hours and years of, of it feels like therapeutic, you know what I mean? Because I'm constantly asking myself, why did this impact me so much? Why did it make me feel this way? Why is it stuck with me for this long? So, I couldn't even put, before we finished this film, We Are Not Ghouls, I couldn't put the story of my friend Abdel into words. Like there are people that I had classmates that saw the same situation and that we went through it together, but I couldn't even talk about it. Do you know what I mean? Like I wouldn't even be able to put it into words without, I would be too afraid to. So like the film in a sense is getting to a place where I can make sense of it and find the language and understand the motivations and the people who are involved and how the power works and how you can fight back and all these things. So. We Are Not Ghouls is very much trying to explore that traumatic situation for myself. The Jeffrey Dahmer Files was motivated by, I grew up in Wisconsin, which is where Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested in Milwaukee. So my parents were married in Madison. I was living in Madison, which is about an hour away. And they got divorced and my dad moved to Milwaukee. So I was going back and forth from Madison to Milwaukee at the period of time when Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested. I was 10 years old. So it was in the newspaper and in the news and I was living in Milwaukee and in Madison. And when you're 10, your parents are kind of trying to shield you from that type of story in the news, you know, so they change the channel on the news station or hide the newspaper with the headline, that kind of stuff. But people were talking about it because it was like such a big news story. And I remember being 10, I was really confused that in Milwaukee, people talked about it like it was a natural disaster, like a flood or a hurricane or a tornado or something that took people that they knew and loved away from them. Like everyone knew someone that was involved or had their life changed, because it's not that big of a community in that sense. Everyone was directly connected to it and talked about it in really depressing tones as you would talk about a a natural disaster, harming people's lives. In Madison, which is only 80 miles away, people talked about the same case as if it was a, a movie that was coming out Friday night at the Megaplex that everyone was gonna go see. You know what I mean? It was entertainment in a sense not to say that people weren't sad or like thought that it was a bad situation but they were just removed enough that it was sensational and sort of salacious it was more of like a true crime story as opposed to a natural disaster that happened to you and your your family and friends and when i was 10 i didn't i couldn't understand why there was that difference in in perspective geographically just 1 hour away and so that film was going back and trying to unpack all that and and try to understand what makes catastrophes or disasters or traumatic situations traumatic for us at the time and in the moment. And how far away are you to avoid that trauma or or how does it connect to you or hold on to you? How long does it last? And so the subjects from that film, very much in the same way that Yvonne was talking in We Are Not Ghouls, were talking about, you know, what that case did to them and their families and their social lives. So it's not even really a film about Jeffrey Dahmer. It's about the people that were around him and how their lives were rearranged because of what he did in the same way that We Are Not Ghouls is not really a story about Guantanamo Bay. It's a story about Yvonne Bradley and how her life was rearranged by this assignment at Guantanamo Bay. So that's kind of my motivation for making movies is is pulling apart these personal situations.
0: I want to ask you the same kind of question I asked Yvonne, like, you just talked about how making these films is cathartic and like healing in a lot of ways. But when it is really tough and when things you hear stories from interviews, maybe that are really difficult to hear, how do you take care of yourself in those moments?
2: I don't know that I have a good answer for that. I mean, I think the therap- the therapeutic part is that like the first interview we did with Yvonne was five hours long. It was the first day that I met her. She trusted me enough for whatever reason to sit in front of a camera for five hours and tell me this incredibly complex personal history, right? That had a profound impact on her life and in her entire world. She shared that with me for five hours. So imagine after someone has shared that with you in such an intimate, trusting setting, and then you leave, you part ways, and you go back home and go to bed that night. Someone has given you something, right? They've shared something with you that is of tremendous value to them. And that then sort of supersedes any stress that I feel personally, because all of a sudden there's something new to focus on, which is an obligation to this person to try to help share their story, to finish a story that we're going to try to tell together a project, a creative venture, right? So I don't know that that's the most healthy way way to go about dealing with your personal traumas. But for me, it's a distraction of sorts, but a distraction that allows me to unpack it sort of on my own t- terms over time. And so a lot of people ask why the film takes nine years to make. Part of it is limited resources. And, you know, in a lot of days, it's just Yvonne and I and a camera trying to figure out what this scene is going to be or what we're going to do. But also it's all that time in between of trying to figure out why this is important to me.
0: Yvonne, I'm wondering what making a film like this does for you as far as like sharing a big part of yourself and having so many people who are maybe familiar with the story from like a news standpoint, but now they see your personal side of it. Like how does that affect your life and what maybe are some of like the positives that that's done for you?
1: I would say, first of all, I want to say this, because when Chris first came to me, and it it goes not even to Chris, it goes to this whole experience that I went through, or what Binyan went through. So one of the things I was always concerned about, because I knew this was newsworthy, I never really wanted to tell the story, because it wasn't my story, and I didn't go through the trauma and the experience that Binyan went through. So I never wanted to feel that I was taking advantage of telling his story. And Chris assured me it wasn't a Bingham story. It was, a, it was my story. And the thing I liked about the documentary, that I think that helped me, was it put a human personality and a human nature to it. So it wasn't just some radical left-wing liberals saying, open up the doors and let all these people, people out. It was really who I was and really what I went through. And even going through it, it it was healthy because there was many things I never had said to people before because I did hold a lot of this in and didn't tell friends and didn't tell family, as my sister said. So in talking with Chris, it was probably the first, even though I had done interviews before and I had been investigated, and interrogated, I could say, by MF. and my five, who was doing some investigation afterwards of what happened with Bingham. Probably with Chris was probably the first time I felt I was telling my story and allowing things to to get out. So i always, at the same time, was feeling like, how much do I want to really say this and not stepping on Bingham's toes on this being Bingham's story and how much of this is my story and that people need to know really what's happening, what their government is, is, is doing. So it was always that balance and, and doing this project and talking with Chris and not knowing what the end product was going to be. But at the same time, having that sense of duty that people, the American people have to know what's going on. Because if we don't tell the story, then people will think, oh, and, and, and this was the whole thing that really got me with Guantanamo. With And with my first hearing there, when I realized you guys just want to pat yourselves on the back and say, "Oh, we got the bad guys and how good we are." When I realized we weren't wearing the white hat, so to speak. So by Chris putting a human point on this and telling from my point of view and I, Bingham's point of view, so much I felt better about it because I never wanted to take advantage of Bingham's situation and take any glory on it. Because as much as I went through in defending him. I cannot even imagine the pain, the hurt, the suffering, the psychological abuse that Binyam went through. So I always wrestled with that in doing this project.
2: I was just gonna piggyback on that. Like Yvonne saying that, you know, what she went through was nothing compared to what Binyam went through. In a way, you know, after I interview Yvonne and hear her story, it compartmentalizes what I went through, right? Because she did this for four years and, you know, in some regards, it destroyed her social life and her ability to communicate with her family and friends. So she lost much more than I did in, in many regards. So it allowed me to, to put that focus on someone else, you know. And, and I think hearing her tell her story, it, it, there's similarities with the way that she was operating to put the focus on Binyam and tell his story and and keep the rest on the sidelines just to do her job, you know. And, and it, it was so inspiring, it really is to find someone who weathered a storm. Right. And came out the other side and can show us that change takes a lot of time and energy and it might not feel like it in the moment, but it's worth it in the end.
0: I just love hearing that because for so many reasons, but at the end of the day, no matter who we are and no matter how, if we have a compelling story or not, we all want to be seen and heard and not everyone's going to have the platform like Chris has to be able to share your story. but. I'm glad that you got that space after having to be kind of forced to be silent and by yourself in a way, but by the system as well to, for so long, because it's just so, I don't know, we all need to have that release. And that's why, you know, therapy exists or whatever. But like, this is a story that's beyond therapy. It's one that resonates with so many people and tells a different part of this like national news story that we're all familiar with but we're not familiar with it on a personal level and now we are so thank you i'm glad we that this this happened i want to wrap things up by just asking chris a final question if i if you could talk about the title choice and why that quote like what the meaning of we are not ghouls is and why that resonated with you
2: yeah, for sure. A, a big part of making this was the editing process. So I was editing it as I was shooting it. And a lot of the editing was trying to find archival stories or news clips of cases, court cases, hearings, statements by lawyers, you know, military officials, all these things to help paint a picture of this period of time as it related to Yvonne's story. Right. Because Yvonne's telling us the story sitting in a chair that happened years before we filmed the interview. So then how do you sort of create feeling of that space and that time and energy and mindset that the average American had thinking and, and looking at all this stuff? So I was watching tons of news footage, you know, hours a night sometimes just alone watching stuff. And there's one clip that I saw at one point where, you know, after watching hundreds of hours of like Senate hearings and, and conversations, this congressperson from California named Dana Rohrabacher is explaining This is some years after Guantanamo, I don't know, like mid-2000s, 2007, something like that, eight, nine. He's saying, in all wars, there's mistakes. There's never been a war where there are not mistakes. And the war on terror is not an exception. There's been mistakes in the war on terror. So if you want to get mad at us for torturing someone, and he slips up and says, torturing someone, and he says, if you want to get mad at us for mistreating someone, you know, that's a truth of war. And that's the reality of the world that we live in. We're not ghouls. We didn't want to torture people because they have a bad name. You know, we're doing these things because we're afraid they want to kill you and kill your children. And I remember just looking at that and I was like, holy shit, that's the craziest statement for so many reasons. First of all, because he admits that they are torturing people, whether it was accidentally or intentionally, he admits it. But then he says, we're not torturing them because we're ghouls, which is insane to defend yourself by saying you're not a ghoul. Like imagine if you made a mistake in your family or in your relationship and then you're apologizing, you say, I'm not a ghoul. It's like, you'd probably need to re-examine the circumstances that got you to that place where you're apologizing to someone by saying you're not a ghoul. And then lastly, it was so profound because he's saying it was a mistake. So if it was a mistake, you know, since I have a four-year-old son and every single day, if you make a mistake, that's okay you know, solve the problem by apologizing, by help clean it up, by make sure that people are okay if they're hurt, you know, these types of things. We all know what you do if you make a mistake. and that didn't happen in Binyam's case, and that was what Yvonne was always, you know arguing for was let's clean up this mistake. And so it was such a profound statement on so many levels. and I just thought we are not ghouls. It's a great name for the film because if you think about a film, about someone held at Guantanamo called "We Are Not Ghouls," you assume it's the people in Guantanamo defending themselves by saying "We are not ghouls." We're, you know we're human beings. You have us locked up in this detention center as if we're ghouls and we're some type of other alien or you know demons or something like that, ghouls. But the irony is, you know, it's a paid politician that represents us at the highest levels of our government, saying "We are not ghouls" on behalf of all of us Americans. He's defending us by saying "We are not ghouls," and so. I don't know. To me, that just stuck with me. It'll stick with me forever. And, you know, years after I watched that clip and decided that would be the title, it also struck me, you know, that Binyam has said in in his recorded interviews with the BBC, all he wants is for the truth to get out so it doesn't happen again. And he's saying, if you want to torture people as a government, as a state, that's fine. But say that you're torturing people so that your citizens know it. Don't torture people and say you're not torturing people say you're torturing people and then let your citizens decide if, if that's how they want their country to be run or not. And in a way, Dana Rohrabacher was being more honest with that statement about this entire situation than maybe even some of the more liberal politicians that were talking about it at the time or more social justice based doc- politicians that were talking about it at the time. Whether he was intentionally talking about it, that honestly, I'm I'm not sure. That's a debate for another day. But he was he was very honestly tell- he was very openly using words telling you know the American people in the world that we were torturing people it was a mistake and that's the end of the story that's the reality of the cold world we live in so I choose to take a different perspective on it than, than he does but I think it's ironic that he was in a way the most truthful of all politicians talking about it at that time by saying those things
0: well how can people follow the film watch the film where can people follow on Instagram is there any screens coming up?
2: Yeah, we just signed a deal with Gravitas. So this film will come out February 28th of 2023. And then we're also working on a special screening at Howard, where Yvonne is enrolled currently on her GI Bill, which is amazing, to have a screening there. And they want to feature her as a prominent figure during that month. So That might be the most exciting part of making this film for me is that we might get to play it at Howard and Yvonne will be the center focus of the day that that would make me so happy. But for everyone else, February 28th, VOD and and then hopefully streaming out other places too.
0: That's great. I'm glad it got theatrical or distribution already. That's awesome. That doesn't happen to everybody. (laughs) Even even stories that should be heard by everyone. It still doesn't happen to everybody. So I'm glad that it happened for this one. Thank you guys so much. This has been probably my favorite episode interview that I've had. I love getting to talk to both of you and I could keep doing it if we had more time. But thank you so much for being open and sharing both of your personal stories with me and with everyone else. You're welcome.
2: Thanks a lot for having us, Don. Keep up the good work on your podcast.
0: We Are Not Ghouls is now available to rent or own on Amazon Prime Video, iTunes, YouTube, and more. I really hope that you all go see the film. It is so incredible. It won the Audience Award at South by Southwest and has played a lot of different film festivals and deserves to be watched by as many people as possible, especially in America. So go check it out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Faux Real. The music is Lost and Bound by Tallinn Kali. The artwork is by Whitney Salgado. Editing is done by The Wave Podcasting. And I'm your host, Dawn Borchart.